I think you all know Mr. Clifton, or know of him, so I'm not going to waste any time introducing him. I'm going to ask Mr. Lip Mr. Clifton to tell us about one of the most wonderful aircraft this world has yet seen. Mr. Naylor, ladies and gentlemen, most of the material that I shall present to you this evening was gathered together for a talk to the Swindon branch of the Society some years ago, and I received a great deal of help at that time from my colleagues at the Supermarine Works. For tonight, a great many slides had to be remade in 35mm size, and the Weybridge Division of the British Aircraft Corporation kindly took on this job. It's not their fault that some are not as clear as one would like, being several times removed from the original records, uh, most of which were unfortunately destroyed in a fire in the photographic department at the South, South Marston Works. <clears throat> Nevertheless, my problem has been what to omit. Even though I've looked at the history of the supermarine firm through design spectacles, doing less than justice to manufacturing, inspection and commercial aspects, I still have too much material for the time available. I would, however, ask anyone who detects any serious omissions or errors, for that matter, to tell me, and I will endeavour to amend the written word for the benefit of any archives to which it might penetrate. Pemberton Billing, who founded the firm, was the son of a Birmingham iron founder. Of an adventurous disposition, he had fought in the Boer War and in 1904 built a man-lifting glider. Subsequently, with the assistance of, amongst others, Gordon England and Howard Wright, he built an aeroplane which was unsuccessful and never flew. In 1912, he bought a workshop at Woolston, Southampton, alongside the floating bridge which still goes to and fro across the River Itchin. In 1914, a flying boat was exhibited at Olympia. I don't think that this flew either. Supermarine was the telegraphic address of Pemberton Billing Limited. Supermarine was actually the name Pemberton Billing gave to an idea, a boat which could fly and in emergency alight on the water and jettison its superstructure. Here is a part of a little brochure that was produced at the time which you will see how he's explaining the meaning of the word there. According to George Kettlewell, who joined the firm in 1920 and is now retired, Pemberton Billing encountered a young man named Hubert Scott Payne at a local boxing exhibition in Marseille. Finding he could drive a car and sail a boat, he offered it the well-built red-haired Englishman a job on his yacht and subsequently in his new aircraft firm. I rather like the prices down the right-hand side. Pemberton Billing, when he joined the Royal Naval Air Service, made Scott Payne manager. But uh, Pemberton Billing was at this point a member of Parliament and accused of making war profits at his Woolston factory. He therefore looked for someone to sell it to. Scott Payne is said to have bought it with money mostly borrowed from his mother-in-law. He changed the name to Supermarine Aviation Works Limited and became managing director. This took place in 1916. During that period of the First World War, a number of military aircraft were built, 
some to the firm's own designs. There was a single-seat, no-engined aeroplane known as the seven-day bus because it was said to have taken seven days to build. In 1915, a pusher scout reminiscent of the Vickers gun bus was designed and built, 1,576 pounds, 99 miles an hour top speed. In 1916 was built the AD Navy plane, shown with Scott Payne on the right there, and the pilot, Wing Commander Seddon. A letter from the Admiralty commended the exceptionally speedy and efficient manner in which the construction was carried out. It took eight weeks to build. In 1916, a quadruplane was designed to fly early the next year. A Zeppelin destroyer of 60 feet span, it had an enclosed cockpit, sleeping berth, searchlight, one and a half pound quick firing gun and two Lewis guns. Weight for that lot, 6,146 pounds. Speed, 75 miles an hour. A subsequent catalogue said, although our contract performance was made with 100 revs per minute down on either engine due to overloading of the propellers, the machine was not adopted no reason being given by the authorities. It was in 1916 that young R.J. Mitchell arrived after an apprenticeship at the Staffordshire firm of locomotive builders Kerr, Stewart & Co. He was soon making comprehensive drawings. This is actually one of Mitchell's drawings, his signature there, and the date which you unfortunately can't see, I think, was September the 18th, 1916. And you'll see it's quite a comprehensive layout, actually, of that quadruplane. You can just see the searchlight almost off the picture there. And uh, the quick-firing gun, I think, is just above and behind it. And then up the top are the two Lewis guns. And when he was putting the left-hand one in, Mitchell evidently found he hadn't quite got enough paper. So, rather characteristically, I thought, he added a bit of paper on. He wasn't going to draw the whole thing again. <coughs> Designed and flown in February 1917 was a pusher two-seat flying boat fitted with wheels to enable it to take off the deck of a warship, the wheels being thrown clear while in flight and a lighting carried out on the water. With a speed of 100 miles an hour, this machine was undoubtedly the grandparent of the walrus. Now, I'm very sorry, I haven't a picture of this. I discovered today where I can get one, so one can go in the record, all right. In 1917, Squadron Commander James Bird was appointed a director of the firm. In February 1918, the N1B Baby single-seat flying boat weighed 2,326 pounds, top speed 116 miles an hour was flown, had folding wings and was intended for scouting duties. At this time, W.A. Hargreaves was chief designer and the test pilot was named Hobbs. A modified N1B the Sea Lion was entered for the 1919 Schneider Trophy race. Held at Bournemouth, this was a fiasco due to fog, no one completing the course correctly. However, the award was given to an Italian entry. In 1919-2, a passenger flying boat, the Channel type, was designed and built. Hargreaves went at the end of 1919, and R.J. Mitchell took over to be appointed Chief Engineer and Designer in 1920 at the age of 25. An amphibian version of the N1B called the Sea King was produced. 
1920, RJ's first real success was scored with an amphibian flying boat designed for the Air Ministry competition at Martlesham Heath. This competition was won by the Vickers Viking, but the Supermarine aircraft was awarded a special prize. There is a story about this competition for which I afraid I cannot vouch the accuracy, but it goes to the extent that the Weybridge chaps were taking part in the takeoff trials and they looked for some means of reducing the weight of their boat to get the best results and they hit upon the idea of chucking the anchor overboard. Rather unfortunately it floated because it turned out to be made of wood. However, the alert supermarine characters who were on the same uh, part of the task uh, saw something was going on. They didn't know exactly what it was, but uh, they, they had a rough idea, and so they looked around to see whether they could do something similar. And uh, preparing to seize their anchor, they found that, very unfortunately, it was painted on the side. <coughs> In 1921, a development of the Martlesham Amphibian became the Seal Deck Landing Amphibian, subsequently renamed Seagull. If the two-seater flying boat of 1917 was the grandparent, the Seal was certainly the parent of the Walrus. About this time, Joe Smith joined the firm, and Henri Biard was the test pilot. The drawing office staff was small. Now, this is a rather familiar picture to you, I think, in the rear row on the left Joe Smith, next to him George Kettlewell and then a little below Frank Holroyd with a pipe and on the right Arthur Sherville and in the front row Miss Atwater the head tracer and then a draftsman called Harris who was a very meticulous draftsman and then a lady whose name was Miss Haynes and I believe was the daughter of the local um, station master. Of course naturally what I remember more clearly about her was that she was reputed to have the same vital statistics as Venus de Milo, but uh, I can't give you any uh, recorded uh, observations on the subject. In 1922, a modified sea lion was entered for the Schneider Trophy and flown by Biard at Naples, won at a speed of 145.62 miles an hour. On their return, the winners were accorded a civic reception at Southampton. In 1923, I was taken on to do stressing, which at that point, in addition to performance calculations, Mitchell was doing himself. R.J. was an associate member of the Institution of Civil Engineers and was well qualified academically. Intensely practical and gifted with great common sense, he was quite willing to listen to the views of others and never too proud to make use of their knowledge and experience, provided it passed the tests his intelligence applied to it. When the 1923 sea lion was brought out for the Schneider Trophy race and was beaten by the Curtis float biplanes which came over from America, Mitchell first of all evolved a scheme for a flying boat with engine in the hull and a shaft-driven pusher propeller. However, this was not supported by the engine firms who were worried about the success of the shaft drive with very high horsepowers, and Mitchell then moved imaginatively to the S4 cantilever float monoplane with an apia lion engine. Bracing wires were thrown away. A world record 
for seaplanes, 226.75 miles an hour was gained. In one respect, however, the bounds of knowledge were overstepped. On a preliminary flight over Chesapeake Bay, tuning up for the 1925 Schneider race, the machine went out of control on a turn and crashed into the sea. The cause was not established, but may have been associated with the stiffness of the wooden monoplane wing, the requirements for which were not well understood at that time. That shows the monocoque fuselage being uh, covered with diagonal skin. The floats, you see, were also wood. And there was a steel center of tubing, like a sort of hobby horse in the middle, which you can see with the here four members that supported the floats and the engine bearers growing off them to the engine and the, that monocoque fuselage was bound, mounted on the back. And there is another picture showing you the wing which was entirely of wooden construction. Fortunately, this is regarding the accident, Biard received nothing worse than a ducking. The Italians brought out a braced monoplane to win the trophy from the Americans in 1926 and Mitchell recognized that the brace structure had the merit of greatly increased resistance to wing distortion. So his next airplane, the S5, had the bracing back. When given advice at the time of the Spitfire that there was no reduction in drag to be obtained below a thickness cord ratio of 15%, he in this case rejected it on common sense grounds and settled for 12% at the root and 6% at the tip. Hard work, leadership, enthusiasm, common sense, imagination, intelligence, an open mind, all these qualities were combined in RJ. But the essential characteristic he shared with all the great engineers was the judgment which enabled him to arrive at a balanced decision after assimilating the facts. His death in June 1937 at the age of 42 was a great loss to aviation and a tremendous blow to supermarine. Let us look at some more of the aeroplanes for which he was responsible. In 1923, a service to the Channel Islands was commenced from Woolston by a firm associated with supermarine, the British Air Marine Navigation Co., using the Sea Eagle as an amphibian with a 360 horsepower Rolls-Royce Eagle engine. Well, that picture is not at the Channel Islands. It is, you, some of you will recognize, is at Sea View on the island. There's the old pier, which I think is no more. And, uh, to me, the picture is rather reminiscent of some I've seen recently of hovercraft, uh, with merely a change in the type of clothing worn by the people on the beach. This enterprise, that is the British Marine Air Navigation Company, of which Scott Payne was managing director, was merged the next year with other firms into Imperial Airways, the government-sponsored forefather of BEA and BOAC, so that Supermarine is a kind of great-uncle of our major British airlines. A military development of the Sea Eagle, the Scarab, was produced in 1924 for the Spanish Navy. A number were washed off the deck of the ship, taking them to Spain, but a few were used in the Spanish-Moroccan War. In 1924, too, the Swan, a twin-engined amphibian, was built, and on June the 27th the firm was honoured by a visit from the Prince of Wales. Shortly before this, Scott Payne had sold his interest in the firm to James Bird, who brought in some new directors. Here's a photograph of people in the, on the production side. 
And these are the chaps, I might say, on, on whom Supermarine relied when they built up, really, their big reputation. And on the left at the top, who was in charge of putting together the power plants, uh, next to him, Archie Boyce Woodmill, then Henri Biard, George Gingell Machine Shop, Arthur Powell Wing uh, Assembly, and Arthur Powell has kindly lent me this picture. He's still going strong down near Southampton. And the next row on the left, um, Glide in charge of jigs and progress, MacFarlane inspection, then comes Mitchell, then Wilfred Elliott, the works manager, Arthur Nelson, who sort of general sort of supervisor, and Frank Holroyd, who was from the design office. Then the sitting down, uh, Teddy Hiscox in charge of the um, metal fitting shop, uh, Dickie Pickett, the hull shop, Miss Penton in charge of the dope shop, Gates, the finish store, and Swapman, the buyer. With a design team of about a dozen, and a work staff of this size, there was a directness about our activities which, which was reflected in the time scale and in the sense of everybody knowing all that was going on. There was plenty of enthusiasm, and as there was not full employment in the country, a job was something to be looked after. Wilfred Elliott was works manager, and he was a great man for getting the best out of his people. Discipline was not very strict, but I think it's fair to say we got results. In 1924, the Sparrow was built for the Daily Mail light aeroplane contest at Lim for the Blackburn three-cylinder engine which poked conrods through the crankcase now and then. We were using a wood propeller and on a certain Monday when the competition was starting decided to try a metal one of which we had no experience. A strip of light alloy was formed and filed section in the supermarine shops and by Saturday was on the Sparrow at Lim. The maximum revs per minute per minute were down by 700, but the conrods stayed inside the crankcase and the sparrow, with Biard up, came in fourth in the Grosvenor Cup race which followed the competition proper. Subsequently, the sparrow was fitted with a series of monoplane wings for some full-scale research on wing, wing sections carried out with Ernest Mansbridge, who was here this evening, by the way, in the observer's seat. In 1925, the S4, which you saw, Instructions to proceed March the 18th, first flight August the 25th, seaplane world speed record September the 13th. And then that year also saw the Southampton military flying boat with the Swan superstructure, same superstructure that you saw on the aeroplane with the Prince of Wales there, but a new hull and tail. In this case we had the production order on July the 25th and the first aeroplane flew in February the next year. The semi-cantilever tower design in particular was influenced by Oliver Simmons who came to us from the RAE as a technical assistant mainly to look after performance and stability work. He afterwards founded Spartan Aircraft and later Simmons Air Accessories to become Sir Oliver Simmons and today lives, I believe, in the Bahamas. Which sounds as though it might not have been too good a choice, doesn't it? The Southampton made a series of formation cruises culminating in 1927 in a journey out east, round Australia to Hong Kong and back to Singapore. The crew lived on these 15,000 pound aircraft. The firm's great faith in flying boats, starting from Pemberton Billings enthusiasm, was becoming vindicated. In 1925, a batch of seagulls was sold to Australia 
Lady Cook, wife of the High Commissioner, christened the first. Well, I'm sorry about this rather faceless picture, but it does give you an idea of the christening ceremony. And if you look very carefully, you can see two strings which look like scratches. The scheme was we, we hung the anchor over the bow, and we had a trial run beforehand with a bottle which was suspended right up in the roof. And uh, Oscar Sommer, who was in charge of it, had it so arranged that when Lady uh, Cook, the commissioner's wife, cut the string, down came the bottle, and it all worked like a charm, except when we were ready for her to, to activate the scheme, we found we hadn't provided any scissors. Anyway, Oscar had a personal pair which he produced like a flash, and all was well, in fact so well, that they presented Lady Cook with Oscar's scissors and we had to buy him another pair. <laughs> 1926 was mainly a year of producing Southamptons, and in 1927 the S5 won the Schneider Trophy in Venice. At this period, a transition from wood to metal construction was taking place. The S4 had a wooden shell on a center section framework of steel tube. Well, you saw those pictures. The S5, that's this airplane, had a duralumin monocoque fuselage and duralumin floats, except for the fuel tank portion in the starboard float, which was made of tin steel. The wings, however, were of wood. The S6, following on, was entirely in metal. Southampton hull. Here's a picture of some Southampton hulls. They were of wood. But a duralumin version was designed by Mitchell and Arthur Sherville. The wood hull weighed 1,900 pounds, including water soakage. And the metal hull, this is it, weighed 1,350. Although it saved so much weight, it proved extremely robust and never gave trouble in the exacting service conditions the Southamptons encountered. With no previous experience of a metal hull, this was quite an achievement. In 1928, Bird sold the Supermarine to Vickers. At that time, I mean he sold the firm of Supermarine to Vickers. At that time, we had about 750 employees and I believe I am right in saying that every single one had a gift from Jimmy Bird to mark the occasion. A three Jaguar engine superstructure on a Southampton hull was produced for the Danes to be known as Nanoc. It was a torpedo carrier and failed to fulfill its specification. Subsequently, it was converted to a flying yacht for the Honourable A. Guinness. I think the accommodation inside was about like the the accommodation that Charles Dickens describes when he went to America on a packet boat in 1842. That's uh, dimensionally, it looked pretty tight to me, but I think Guinness was tickled pink. In 1929 appeared a small twin-engined amphibian, the Seamew. This was a biplane with very thick wings. Two prototypes only were built, but the speed was down due to a biplane interference effect on thick wings. I think we may have may have, I'm not sure, misled ourselves with the monoplane tests on the Sparrow and overlooked the biplane effect. We were now a larger firm and the overall process was less easy to control. Trevor Westbrook arrived from Weybridge with tighter ideas on the subject of discipline and tremendous energy and determination to get things done. You had to check up rather carefully on the first flight of one of our flying boats because when it was launched, clusters of chaps were still on it, finishing jobs. I remember going on the first flight of one of our prototype boats myself. We had about seven people on board, including Westbrook. 
1929, the S6 appeared with a Rolls-Royce R engine designed for the job. The 1929 S6 is the centre one in this picture. The other two are the later versions of S6B and 31. Here is a picture of some rig testing, which may make you laugh, but it was uh, quite a practical sort of business and process. I think that one was related to pumping the fuel up from the, the floats to the engine for the Schneider planes. And uh, the right hand of those three people is Arthur Black, who was our metallurgist in the first place and subsequently took over and carried out all our rig testing. Arthur was a great investigator who found answers to many problems in materials and systems which kept cropping up because we were frequently trying out new materials and ideas. The S6 won the Schneider Trophy and took a world speed record. The military aeroplanes, however, were not doing so well. The Nanoc and the Seamew had not been successful and a successor to the Southampton, called the Southampton Mark 10, came out seriously overweight. The hull by Supermarine was of light alloy with a stainless steel bottom and the wings were of Weybridge detail design. The excess weight of 2,000 pounds was, e was equally shared between wings and hull. This aeroplane was also a failure. But Supermarine was still building Southamptons and to retrieve the situation the firm offered to build a prototype of a new design with two Rolls-Royce Kestrels for the price of the last production Southampton. A special drawing office section was set up with Eric Cooper in charge. The resultant aeroplane was spot on the weight target and had a better performance than contemporary land plane bombers. It was ordered in production as the Scarpa. In the civil field, two aircraft were underway in 1930. The first, the air yacht, was ordered by the Honourable A. Guinness as a successor to the converted Danish aeroplane. Due to the general slump in business, there was a craze for cheapness. Carried too far, it resulted in ugly lines which put up drag. Sponsons were new to us, so was the large monoplane structure. Eventually, Guinness turned it down as not fulfilling the specification, and it was sold to a Mrs. James, who flew in it to Italy, where it was damaged landing in very rough seas. The air yacht broke a wing, Mrs. James broke a leg, but no lives were lost and the machine was beached, never to fly again. The other civil aeroplane was a more ambitious project, a six-engine boat. And this is a, a sketch of the accommodation which you will see uh, included having the passengers seated inside the wing and some of them get a splendid view forward through a glass leading edge. I don't know how that would have worked out, I'm sure. Uh, perhaps we ought to say, fortunately, uh, the job was cancelled due to economic stringency at that time. It was really due to the slump. However, you will notice we were moving towards monoplanes. This process was helped by Beverly Shenston, who came to us from Canada by way of the German Junkers firm. He worked hard to improve our standard of aerodynamic cleanness as well as the calculated appraisal of performance and stability. He filled our need for a good fighting aerodynamicist and made an important contribution at a critical point in our history. In 1931, the S6B won the Schneider Trophy outright. Two were designed, 
and built in six months on the strength of a public-spirited gift of £100,000 by Lady Houston. A world speed record of 407 miles per hour followed. In 1931 also, a Southampton with steam-cooled Rolls-Royce Kestrel engines flew and some Southamptons were sold to Turkey. With the S6 doing 400 miles an hour and the current fighters at that time 200 miles an hour, Mitchell's thoughts turned to the fighter market. Supermarine obtained an order for a prototype fighter to specification F730 with steam-cooled Kestrel. The leading edge of the wing, back to the single spar, was the condenser. When hot, it expanded, causing the wing to curve in a slight arc in plan and the ailerons to lose end clearance and tighten up in flight. The main point, however, was that the top speed was quite a little bit, I think it was about 20 miles an hour below estimate, and the machine was not adopted, although valuable lessons were learnt. Mitchell was impressed by the form of the civil Heinkel bought by Rolls and by its wing elliptical in plan. The next effort was a private venture aeroplane evolved from the F-730, retaining the single spar and leading edge torsion box, but having a retractable undercarriage and an elliptic wing in plan. There was official concern that the wing loading, 20 pounds a square foot, might be too high. Rolls-Royce Merlin was pressure-cooled, and Mitchell accepted the ideas of Meredith of RAE for a ducted radiator which gave thrust, not drag. Four machine guns were installed in the wings. Thus started the Spitfire, but a prototype order was later placed by the government to meet specification, specification F3734 with a requirement for eight instead of four guns on the advice of Group Captain Sawley. The increase in firepower necessitated a new pair of wings. On the first flight at Eastley, Matt Summers brought the Spitfire in with a typical side-slip approach. Don't alter anything, he said. Geoffrey Quill did the development flying, and I remember him about ten years later landing and taking off in a much heavier mark of Spitfire in a corner of Radlett Airfield at an SBAC display. The fears about the wing loading seemed unbelievable. Well, going back to fill in the history of the 30s, in 1933 we brought out an amphibian to replace the seagulls sold to Australia in 1926. It had a Bristol... Pegasus pusher engine and the second British retractable undercarriage to go into service. The leading part in the design work was taken by a draftsman designer named Munro who came to us from Canadian Vickers. The hull was of light alloy, the spars stainless steel and the ribs of wood. Australia ordered 12 and insisted on handy page slats on the top plane. I think if you look carefully you can see the slat um, on this near side top plane. I remember sitting in the prototype hull with the director of technical development who remarked, very interesting, but we have no requirement for anything like this. This became the Walrus, and 287 were built by the firm for the Navy for spotter and reconnaissance duties, and it was also used for air sea, by the Royal Air Force for air sea rescue work. Today, the Walrus may seem rather ugly but she must have seemed very beautiful to the ditched airmen in the North Sea, miles from land. During the war, 490 walrus were produced by Saunders Row. Mutt Summers looped the prototype at the SBAC display a few days after its first flight 
But the amazing thing about the walrus was its seaworthiness. According to Lieutenant Commander Nichols' book on the walrus, as a result of trials off the Wolf Rock Lighthouse, the maximum average height of waves in which the walrus could be landed was found from wave recording and cinefilm analysis to be 12 feet. Any of you chaps who were yachtsmen, I, I'm not, would probably appreciate what that meant. Following the success of the Scarpa twin-engine flying boat, we brought out a replacement with increased span and two Bristol Pegasus engines, known as the Stranra. It went into limited production in this country. We also supplied a set of drawings to Canadian Vickers, whose chief engineer was a man named Moffat, and they built a batch for the Canadian Navy. With production 3,000 miles away, we had one query only regarding airscrew pitch. Well, I don't know whether you draw any conclusions from that, but it does look as though the United States firms have now got on to the idea of keeping the Atlantic between design and production. At this time, we were putting in proposals at a high rate. From July 1934 to September 1936, we submitted 28 designs, almost exactly one a month, comprising six amphibians, 18 flying boats, three fighters and one bomber. At this time, we had about ten men in our technical office, including Shervil, who was the project draftsman, Shenston and Mansbridge on aerodynamics and performance, H.C. Smith, Hennessy and Holmes on structures, and H.O. Sommer on structural testing. And we had about 70 draftsmen under Joe Smith, with Cooper, Faddy and Munro as the leaders. The project proposals were, of course, supervised by R.J. and worked out by a select few three or four people at most. In October 1935, we offered to Imperial Airways a transatlantic flying boat, the Stranra, that is the Stranra which was built over here and also the other side of the Atlantic. This is the airplane we offered to Imperial Airways, and it was expected to make, it was a transatlantic job, expected to make a stop at the Azores en route. We adversely criticized the sea conditions for takeoff there, and suggested a catapulting capability from a ship whereby the passengers were to enjoy an acceleration of 1.33 g. In December 1935, we proposed the Walrus replacement which became the Sea Otter. It was intended to be shot off a cruiser catapult, and I forgot to have the two-bladed propeller checked for takeoff from water. On the day allotted for the first flight, George Pickering couldn't get the machine up on the step. The immediate remedy was a four-bladed propeller, but to meet the height restrictions of the cruiser hangar, the two halves were set at 35 degrees instead of 90 degrees, which you can see quite clearly, I think, in that picture. It was known as the scissors propeller and appeared to suffer no loss of efficiency. Again, our production was passed over to Saunders Row, who built 290 sea otters. In September 1936, we submitted our proposal for a four-engine bomber to specification B-1236. Incidentally, this design called for normal takeoff and landing in 500 yards over 50 feet and overload takeoff with the assistance of a catapult at 2.5 g acceleration. This was the last Mitchell design to be ordered. Two prototypes. It retained the Spitfire single-spar wing and carried the fuel in the leading-edge torsion box. Aft of the spar, most of the numerous bombs were housed. With so much in the wing, the fuselage was kept down in cross-section to the advantage of performance. Two prototype fuselages were damaged by enemy bombs at Itchin in September 1940. 
Although prototype manufacture was by that time well advanced and strength tests on major components underway, it was decided that Supermarine should concentrate on the Spitfire, leaving Vickers Weybridge, Shorts and Avros to concentrate on the bombers, which, though very disappointing to us at the time, looks, I suppose, fairly reasonable in retrospect. At this point, we may pause to consider Mitchell's achievement as a designer. Twenty-three different designs accepted between 1919 and 1936. Of these, 15 were successful, eight resulted in production, six were failures and two were never completed. There is no doubt at all that at his death he had become recognized as one of the greatest aircraft designers in the world. After we lost RJ, there was a period in the submission of designs. A pause, I'm sorry. Our modest-sized team was rather fully occupied with productionizing the Spitfire, designing the Sea Otter, and the B-1236 bomber. In March 1938, we submitted a design for a naval torpedo bomber reconnaissance airplane. We received a prototype order in, so that the variable incidence wing could be tried out. A low-priority job during the war, it flew in 1943, acquiring the nickname Dumbo. You can see the wing at high incidence there with the flaps down and some deflection on the aileron. That's the, and the slats out all along the leading edge. That's the high-lift uh, attitude of the wing. And uh, it worked very well. In August 1938, we proposed a twin-engine fighter which Joe Smith was against because he was sure the Spitfire would see us through the war and was, of course, proved right in this view. In 1939, we put in a rather attractive design for a four-engine military flying boat with a retractable step and retractable wing floats. Shown you this as a good example of the harmonious appearance which Arthur Sherville was able to achieve. I think, too, you might like to see the retractable wing float we got by this time with the Spitfire quite used to cantilevering uh, members of undercarriage-like form, so we had two cantilevered struts carrying an aerofoil shape, and this was tested in the tank and uh, worked very well. You not only got the buoyancy, as soon as the aeroplane began, the flying boat began to move, you got uh, dynamic lift out of the float shape. I don't think such a scheme was ever built into an aeroplane, as far as I know. In September 1940, we were bombed out of Woolston, but in October, we submitted the S-1240 design, which was eventually named again the Seagull. It carried the variable incidence wing a step further, with full span slaps, slats and flaps, and had mainly alternating current electrics in order to coordinate the movements on port and starboard sides of the actuators. Due to our preoccupation with fighters, it didn't fly until 1948, by which time the cruiser was out of fashion and the helicopter was being adopted for air-sea rescues. So it never went into production. In comparison with the Southampton, it had the same weight, the same landing speed, a quarter the wing area, twice the power, two and a half times the top speed. Incidentally, the Southampton took seven and a half months to build, and the Seagull, due to the war, seven and a half years. The submission said it embodied a combination of walrus and Spitfire experience, seaworthiness plus performance. What aeroplane could ask for nicer parents, 
even if strangely assaulted. This brings us to the war period and the development of the Spitfire. Alf Faddy, then one of our leading draftsmen, played an important part in this process. The technical aspects, the definitions of every mark, have been recorded in the Society's Journal of April 1947, which contains Joe Smith's lecture to the Society on this subject. Joe Smith was first and foremost the man who had a conviction that the Spitfire would see us through the war, and he had a passion for developing it. As you know, he died to our great sorrow on February the 20th, 1956, and we lost the man who not only led the design team through the war period, but to many people outside the firm, was Supermarine. He would never have claimed Mitchell's brilliance, for like Mitchell, he was an extremely modest man but he shared R.J.'s characteristic of great common sense and sound engineering judgment. Joe had a great sense of humour and a remarkable ability to anticipate the other fellow's line of thought, including its weakness. He was dedicated to his job, which he saw as making a success of the firm's activities. In public, he was a dogged fighter for the policy he believed right. I will quote to you what Joe said about Mitchell, when he read the first Mitchell Memorial Lecture. To have the courage to face such a tragic fate unflinchingly must be the hope of every man, adding a fervent prayer that it may never happen to him. As you know, the same fate overtook Joe, and I can tell you he showed the same unflinching courage. There were times when the possibility of further development of the Spitfire seemed remote, at one point it was proposed Supermarine should build bow fighters. When rumours of a very high-altitude German bomber arrived, another firm was given the task of designing a special twin-engine fighter to meet the threat. In the event, it was the Spitfire, with the aid of the magnificent Merlin, which literally rose to the occasion. Though at 42,000 feet, the pilots, lacking precious cabins, had a very painful time. The Spitfire 9 when it was proposed, met with strong opposition in some official quarters, yet it was probably the most successful mark. 5,665 were built. On one occasion, an official race was organized between a captured F1, FW-190, a Spitfire, and a new fighter from a famous stable. The aircraft were to fly out in formation, turn for home, and at a signal, start full bore back to base, where a party of high-ranking officials and officers were waiting. Geoffrey Quill flew the Spitfire, which was the prototype of the Mark 12, known to us as the Mark 4, with a Rolls-Royce Griffon engine, 37 litres against the 27 litres of the Merlin. In fact, the bore and stroke of the Schneider Trophy R engine. It was the Spitfire which arrived first, to the great delight of Jimmy Bird and Joe Smith, who were among the party at the base. In wartime, development and adaptation are the rule. There is rarely time to perfect new ideas. Perhaps it is not surprising that 30 different marks, including sea fires, and a total of 22,848 aircraft were manufactured. The development of a new mark every few months called for an experimental organization separate from production. When the Spitfire was first ordered, we had no experience of production in any quantity, and all the work went through one planning department which gave production the priority. The result was that the Sea Otter, the B-1236, and the development of the Spitfire fell by the wayside. During this period, we received two daylight raids on the 24th and 26th of September 1940. 
On the first, 14 people at the Itchin Works lost their lives, and many were injured, because there was no early warning. On the second raid, aimed at the Wollstone factory, warning had been received and people had largely dispersed. Although the Germans plastered about a square mile with bombs from two large formations, only one man at Supermarine, a veteran of the First War, was killed, and the damage from the few bombs which hit the factory was small and could have been repaired in a short time. George Gingell had his machine shop running the next day. However, we all felt we would remain a target, not realising that the Battle of Britain had passed its peak and daylight raids on Southampton were almost over. One more attempt was made on the Supermarine Works at Eastie Airport. By mistake, the bombs were dropped on Cunliffe Owens next door. We learnt of the decision to disperse with great relief. After an interim period in wooden huts at University College, we settled in at Hursley Park to be welcomed by Lady Cooper, a lady of American origin and mature age, who retained her bedroom and other rooms on the first floor, opposite some of our offices on the other side of the corridor. Meantime, the production was transferred to garages, laundries, and similar places over a wide area. And gradually, production built up again to the pre-dispersal level of 130-odd a month. However, we were now worse than ever placed experimentally. Joe continued to exert strong pressure with in due course support from the development side of the Ministry of Aircraft Production. The result was the experimental shop at Hursley in 1941 under Joe's control, but rather late in the day. The scheme for Morris Motors to make Spitfires at the Castle Bromwich factory never quite got going. We were rather startled to learn they were drawing everything ten times full size and complaining some parts would never fit together. It took them a long time to work out the unfamiliar problems of an aeroplane and eventually the authorities got tired of waiting and Vickers' offer to run the factory was accepted. Bonner Dixon was given the job with Stanley Woodley as his chief assistant. The first Castle Bromwich Spitfire was delivered in June 1940 and eventually the rate of production there reached 320 a month. It was done with a lot of unskilled labour, including hairdressers and even a lion tamer. The catch was that alterations were naturally extremely unwelcome. As we were bringing out a new mark every few months, this worried us. This problem was resolved by confining Castle Bromwich production to six selected marks. The dispersed organisation of the parent works at Supermarine lent itself very well to the frequent introduction of new marks which was necessary not only to match advances in enemy performance, but also to cater for photographic reconnaissance and the development of the naval sea fire. In addition to the many subcontracting firms involved, Westlands produced 685 Spitfires, and Westlands and Cunliffe in a number of sea fires. Down at Hamble and at Exeter, Sidwell organised a remarkable repair effort on damaged Spitfires. It was like a rather well-arranged carbreaker's yard with the difference that completed machines were rolling out to the services at a very considerable rate. Perhaps Hawker Sidley have missed a point in failing to claim that they too turned out Spitfires. This ASTF effort was quite separate from the Supermarine Repair on Site organisation which had representatives round the squadrons and civilian teams on rapid call all very efficiently organised by Charles Barter. We had regular meetings at top level with Rolls-Royce, usually in Oxford. 
on our side, Jimmy Bird, Joe and Mansbridge and technical staff, while Rolls-Royce people were Sid Greaves Hives, Lovesy, Stan Hooker and their technical chaps, and Len Fairhurst of Rotols, often attended. And in this way, we kept the airframes, the engines and the propellers coordinated as the power of the Merlin and Griffon mounted. Of course, as you have by now noticed, it was really a question of adding an extra blade every so often. We started with two, and we, w we went to three, and the Spitfire 9 had four, and this is a Spitfire uh, 40... sorry, Spitfire 21, which had five. wasn't the only one, but this is a particular 21. And then we subsequently went on to the Seafire which this is a 46, I think, and on that we had six blades with a pair of contra-rotating three-bladers. Our plans for piston engine development went a long way. After the Spitfire came the Spiteful, which in prototype form had new wings, but in production a new fuselage as well. In naval form it was the Sea Fang, and there's a Sea Fang about to land, land on. You can see the Nice way that sting hook hangs down miles below. It must have been very comforting. We recorded 494 miles an hour and planned the next phase for which a contract was issued. The engine was to have contra props with a two-speed drive to lower the tip speed, the blower already having a three-speed drive. The estimated performance was 525 miles an hour and I have no doubt it would have been achieved. However, the war was by then over and jets were coming in and so this particular development was cancelled. We learnt a great deal about carrier-borne aircraft through our experience developing the sea fire. Aircraft landing on the deck of a carrier calls for rather special skills in design and operation. At first, the sea fire was a spitfire with a hook. Its land undercarriage had insufficient damping and inadequate shock absorption. At the Salerno landings in Italy, the air cover was provided from the carriers initially, a good deal of it from escort carriers. It was a tricky job landing a sea fire on one of these smaller and slower ships, especially when the pilot was tired after a sortie, and there was hardly any wind, as at Salerno on that occasion. Consequently, the wastage was high. As the sea fire developed, we improved the undercarriage and the arrest of hook to minimize bounce, and we gradually built up methods of calculation for design use so that behaviour on the carrier deck became reasonably predictable and satisfactory. There were Spitfires on floats too. First, an attempt was made to fit skewer floats in a matter of weeks for use in Norway, but we were out of Norway before we could fly. Then a later attempt was made for operations from Malta over North Africa, but we were pushed back in Africa out of range of Malta. Thirdly, some were wanted for Crete, but we lost Crete. Eventually we designed and built 12 sets of floats for the Mark V and some became operational at Alexandria. We also fitted one Mark IX with floats, seen, I think, on this slide. An important aspect of the aircraft business has always been test and development flying. Before the war, apart from the Sparrow, which carried out the wing research at Worthy Down, land planes flew from Eastley and flying boats, of course, from Southampton Water. Henri Biard, on the ground, was like a schoolboy with a taste for practical jokes, as, for example, when from a bag he produced a live snake ten feet long at an AID dinner. In the air, he never took an unnecessary risk. During the war, he delivered spitfires. 
Mind you, he said, I couldn't see the instruments very well. Anyway, there were far too many of them. Major Payne, who was Mitchell's deputy for a time, who was an excellent pilot, tested many of our flying boats. When Mutt Summers flew the scarper, he complained of water hitting the elevator horn on takeoff. So we decided on a different type of aerodynamic balance. As a matter of fact, we tried out 22 different ways of balancing the elevator before we finally settled for the original arrangement as the best compromise. The scarper brought us into touch with George Pickering and he subsequently left the Royal Air Force and joined us to fly the walrus and sea otter. George would say what he thought without fear or favour, but he never gave offence. He was carrying out a test on a Spitfire at maximum dive speed when it disintegrated at 6,000 feet and George was injured and temporarily knocked out. He found himself descending still attached to his seat. Half dazed he came through the cloud base which he knew was at 2,000 feet, still trying to get rid of his seat and release his parachute with only one arm working. This he did at the last moment and landed in a tree whence he was rescued, upbraiding his rescuers in no uncertain terms for being so slow in finding him. George recovered from his serious injuries only to lose his life when a Bren gun carrier in which he was taken for a trip overturned. Our accident record with flying boats was extremely good, no lives being lost on the firm's test flights. Taking the whole of supermarine test flying, including all those production spitfires, the following pilots lost their lives. Wakefield in a taxiing accident, Jared in a PRU spitfire, Banner in a Spitfire at High Post, Frank Furlong in a Spiteful, and Peter Robarts in an Attacker. We honour the memory of these brave men. Mike Lithgow carried out successfully all the first flights and many more for over 12 years after the war without injury, though not without incident. This is Mike on the right with Dickie Dickinson who was in charge of our technical flight test organisation in the centre and Jeffrey Quill on the left. Mike made dead stick landings on the Swift from time to time, established in it a world speed record with probably a world record cockpit temperature, tried out various forms of flutter and on one occasion after a sea level incident on the 508 recovered consciousness at 11,000 feet still going up. His death in the 111 crash seemed all the more tragic. Geoffrey Quill, Alex Henshaw, Shay Simmons, George Liddell, these are names which will always be linked with the Spitfire. Alex was reputed to check 20 aeroplanes in a day using a bicycle to get from his office to the aeroplane. On one occasion we arranged for a Spitfire at Castle Bromwich to have a box mounted on the tailplane with approximately one tonne of lead in it and for Alex to do some taxiing to test a special tailwheel. He was about level with the hangar eaves when the Spitfire stalled in a very nose-up attitude before falling back on the tarmac and breaking the fuselage. The wheel was okay. Dave Morgan, when the engine stopped on a swift prototype on the approach to Chilbolton, made an emergency landing in the test valley under high-tension wires through banks, hedges, apple trees, outbuildings and whatnot. The perfect example of the instanta instantaneous choice of the only alternative. Dave Morgan is also the only pilot, to my knowledge, who in reporting an unpredicted wing flutter gave the nodal line and the frequency correctly. Les Cahoon radioed for instructions when the outer wing folded up in the air on an attacker. He was told to step out but chose to land at about 200 knots, for which he received a well-deserved George Medal. 
Chunky Horn took off from Chilbolton with an intake cover lying inside the intake, which shortly stalled the engine so that he had to land the swift wheels up at Wallop Aerodrome in three huge bounces, which couldn't have done Chunky any good, but enormously pleased the numerous cadets who were putting in an in educational day there. And there was Pee Wee Judge, who just had an insatiable thirst for flying. These are the men with a tradition to bring back the evidence day after day. They didn't ask for perfect safety, but were entitled to expect the utmost in careful thought and workmanship that could be put into the job. During the latter part of the war, we became aware that compressibility troubles were occurring on some aircraft when flying at a high percentage of the speed of sound. The RE carried out an investigations on a Spitfire, reaching a record mark number of just over 0.92. Squadron leader Martindale, the pilot, landed the airplane safely, although an oil pressure failure had caused the propeller to overspeed and the blades to come off. At that time, the jet engine was coming in with its tremendous increase in available thrust at high speed. At first, we used the best wing we had, a spiteful, on a new fuselage, demonstrated at the SBAC show at Radlett in 1946. Rolls-Royce tailored the size of the Neen engine to suit our requirements. and This airplane was bought by the Navy as the attacker and flown by Mark Lithgow, gained a world's closed circuit record over 100 kilometers in 1948. Next we put a swept back wing on an attacker. In prototype form with the Neen, it was known as the 510. Developed, it became the Swift with a Rolls-Royce Avon engine, tricycle undercarriage and armament in the fuselage. The attacker was limited to 0.8M in the dive, but the Swift achieved a world speed record at over 0.9M and could exceed M equals 1 in a dive. We were now well and truly in the transonic region where aerodynamic theory tends to go haywire and the wind tunnels available could give no help. We had various troubles, flutter, wing dropping at low and high speed, poor elevator control, problems with power controls, and intake and engine troubles, to say nothing of learning about reheat. Putting these right took some time, and we worked our way through several marks in the Spitfire manner. The Hunter, which was a later design, had also been ordered, and was also working its way through problems, some of which were very similar. Our specification called for the maximum rate of climb to altitude, and we certainly achieved this with the aid of reheat. The unreheated hunter, with a lower rate of climb, had a better endurance. The Air Force, on this occasion, chose Sydney Cam's design as a fighter, and some swifts were adopted for low-level reconnaissance in the form of the Mark V, of which this is a picture, and a few guided missile carriers for evaluation as a Mark VII. It was implied in some quarters that the Swift was a failure. Nothing could be further from the truth. Apart from the fact that the Mark IV complied with the official specification, the Mark V laid the foundations of high subsonic flying at low altitude, which has since become the accepted basis for reconnaissance and bombing tactics when confronted with a modern missile defence. Ordered in prototype, to follow, prototype form to follow the Swift was the 545. With a cranked wing plan form and an estimated altitude capability 10,000 feet higher than the Swift, it incorporated new ideas on construction. Stanley Woodley, our work superintendent, advocated the maximum size of machine components and hence the minimum of sub-assembly processes. 
He built up a most impressive machining capability at our South Marston Works, which enabled Supermarine to lead the way in integral machining practice, which has now become very popular. Two prototypes of the 545 were nearly complete when the project was cancelled. It will not surprise you to know that we had submitted proposals for a development to have a Mark II capability, I mean speed, Mark II, in level flight. Concurrently with the line of single-engine fighter development, we had submitted in 1946 proposals for a twin-engined undercarriageless fighter to be launched from a catapult and re-landed on a pneumatic carpet like a giant lilo with an arrestor wire suspended above it. Boddington of Naval Aircraft Department, RAE, was the protagonist of the carpet and under his direction one was built at Farnborough and in a series of trials with aircraft landing on it shown to be perfectly feasible. Of course, we liked the idea of doing away with the weight and complication of the undercarriage and enthusiastically schemed out aircraft carriers for the Navy and transportable equipment in the form of catapults and carpets for the Royal Air Force. The design of the aeroplane featured a recoilless gun with a revolving magazine like a giant revolver which fired four-inch shells about three feet long. The main planes were straight but thin and there was a so-called butterfly tail to provide fore and aft and directional control. With two of the new Rolls axial compressor engines it offered an exceptionally high rate of climb. However, the carpet idea didn't catch on and nor did the four-inch gun and our design was modified to incorporate an undercarriage and conventional armament. And three of these were ordered as type number 508. Two were completed in this form, while the third was modified to have swept back surfaces and a more conventional tail to become the 525. And this was the forerunner of three prototypes for the Scimitar Strike Fighter currently, I mean now today, in service with the Royal Navy. It was the first production aeroplane in the world with blown flaps. We had to introduce blow at a very late stage to comply with deck landing requirements. I believe it was also the first production aeroplane to make extensive use of integral machining and it introduced titanium for secondary parts such as blow ducting and gun blast tubes. This lead, titanium, has unfortunately not been followed up to any extent in Britain. One main problem was how to deal with fears about roll-yaw instability which had caused the loss of a number of American swept-wing fighters. George Henson, who joined us from Cranfield in 1950, solved this problem brilliantly with the cooperation of the technical and flight test staff and we succeeded in getting the scimitar a completely unrestricted handling clearance. We offered developments of the scimitar in two-seater form as an alternative to the buccaneer, if adopted they would have saved the country a lot of money. We put in a proposal for a canard fighter which was to carry in one form the Weybridge Red Dean air-to-air -air missile. This was the last aeroplane design to be produced under the direction of Joe Smith. At this point, having lost Joe, we lacked a man in authority at Supermarine with the ability to steer our organization safely through the troubled waters ahead. We had an extremely strong technical team and an advanced know-how in manufacture. The technical office staff of 10 when Mitchell died had grown to 180 and the total design staff to about 600 and this team was, was able to deal effectively with the problems of the production scimitar going into service as well as designing the 545 
then under construction. In early 1957, Duncan Sands' misguided statement on the replacement of military aircraft by missiles caused the managing director to warn us on Ash Wednesday, incidentally, that the future of Supermarine was in jeopardy. The Supermarine design team, in what proved to be their swan song, submitted a design for the TSR-2 competition entered by almost every aircraft firm in the country. During the long period of official examination, the Supermarine design staff were moving out of their temporary home at Hursley, where they had been for 17 years, and about half of them made the transfer to South Marston. In January 1959, it was announced that their design, and that of English Electric for TSR2, had been accepted on the understanding that the job was tackled by Vickers and English Electric jointly. In the spring of 1959, it was decided that future aircraft design for the Vickers Aviation Group would be done at Weybridge and Hearn. It was on a modest number of supermarine design shoulders, which made another transfer, this time to Weybridge, that the main burden of designing the Vickers half of TSR-2 rested. As everyone knows, TSR-2, like the quadruplane, flew, but was not adopted by the authorities. When the British Aircraft Corporation was formed in 1960, the supermarine works were not included, and the name of the works was changed to Vickers Armstrong South Marston. And the chapter of British aeronautical history, which Pemberton Billing had opened in 1912, was closed. Looking back on those two periods of great pioneering, R.J. Mitchell's from 1916 to 1937, and Joe Smith's from 1937 to 1956, the first was characterised by R.J.'s superb judgement of how far to leap without overbalancing. The second, by Joe's sheer common sense and belief in his team. We have great need of these qualities in our country today. Those who worked in either period have proud recollections to pass on to their grandchildren. Those who, like myself, worked in both were indeed fortunate. Well, I'm sure you'll all agree with me that we've had a most amazing history. A history which not only of aircraft, but of the people who designed and built them. I liked his references to R.J. and to Joe Smith, and the tributes he made to the many pilots who have flown and to those who lost their lives uh, in developing these aircraft. Now, I'm sure... Mr. Clifton, who has been behind the scenes all the time and producing, well, he hasn't told us what he did, but we do know, many of us, what, how much he helped here and there. And I'm sure he'll help us more by answering any questions that you'd like to put up from the floor. Anyone would like to, now, to ask him some questions? I think you could answer a few, couldn't you? Even though you've had a rather a strenuous time in producing so many slides and knowing exactly what they were as they went through. A marvellous performance. May I pay a small tribute to the memories which I personally have of R.J. Mitchell and later of Joe Smith. I was associated with them for some 30 years from 1924 on and off 
But the years I would particularly like to mention were from 1924 to 1927, when, in the first place, I joined Super Green as a very junior draftsman in a very small team of some 15 of us working on the design of the S4, the S5, and the Schneider Trophy, uh, those Schneider Trophy racers, and of the Mental Southampton. Looking back now, I see them as the happiest years of my life because perhaps we had a wonderful enthusiasm for the work and we had a wonderful leader in R.J. Mitchell. I remember in those days he used to visit every drawing board in the office, in the drawing office, every day and spent something like a quarter of an hour with every draftsman. I wish we could say in the aircraft industry now that that sort of thing was being done by our chief designers. I left Supermarine, unfortunately, in 1927, in order, I thought, to go to better things. But I became associated with them on the fringe for many years afterwards through Joe Smith, and he was equally an inspiration, and I would like to pay my own personal tribute to uh, the leadership which he gave me following on the training which I had had under Archie Mitchell. I'd also like to say a word about the personal friendship I had with Alan Clifton when he used to come round to my digs in Southampton of an evening in 1925, 6, 7 and instruct me in the inner meanings of AP 970. He will remember those days, perhaps. Thank you, and congratulations, Mr. Clifton, on your wonderful lecture. Uh, my question is rather very direct, and perhaps been asked many times before in the past, but does Mr. Clifton envisage any return at all in the future to marine aircraft, and does he think there could be a future for such an aircraft in promotion plan today? Well, you asked my opinion on that. Of course, we did for a long time try very hard to keep the flying boats going, and uh, Saunders Row, too, did the same. Um, I think the existence of the aerodromes built during the war uh, seems to have uh, reduced their chances. Whether we shall ever get to the point where uh, aeroplanes get so big that we have to float them off the sea again, I don't know. I just think it's unlikely myself. The power is uh, greatly going up and I think schemes for applying some of this power to lifting the aeroplane will gradually come in and perhaps, at least I hope, reduce the enormous long runways that we currently require. I would think the odds are against it other than uh, small ones for pleasure perhaps and Coast Guard duties. Said, would it be possible for anybody to, a genius, to come to the forefront in aeronautical design today, such as our James Well, I don't see how you can get along with uh, invention and innovation without uh, great men like Mitchell and Cam, myself. I should think they still exist. The only thing is, the uh, process is different now, and uh, perhaps their part uh, doesn't appear to be the same. I still think there must be great characters hanging about who are responsible for the projecting of the 
of uh, aeroplanes, which has become more of a projecting job, of course, because uh, one man, I should think, is unlikely to project the job and then have the process of putting it into ironmongery. Well, it's the size of the process that has called it, caused it to alter. I don't think you can go back to the scale of activities that we had when you're talking about enormous great aeroplanes, Wayne. Might I refer to one aspect of Mitchell and also Hugh Smith that has not been mentioned, and that is their contact with outside people. It was one of my jobs through many years to go with uh, Mr. Ralph, whom many of you know, to go and visit aircraft firms without an agenda. And the reception we received when we went to Super Marine, both by R.J. and by uh, Joe Smith, and incidentally, of course, our lecturer, the reception we got from them, and the way they listened to what little we could do, give them to help, and how they seemed to assimilate it, although they were not what we would call scientists in the strict sense, they were engineers, how they assimilated and how kind they were always to us and putting up with silly notions sometimes we put to them and yet they went on and assimilated these things, especially the large amount of information they got from the NPL, which I think Mr. Clifton would agree helped both um, R.J. and Joe Smith, and of course also from R.A.E. But they assimilated this all and put it into the aircraft which we know. That's quite true, Mr. Chairman. I think you might say that I, I uh, didn't really do justice to this aspect. Um, there's no doubt that both Mitchell and Joe Smith relied on what you termed outside help, the NPL, the RAE and other people in the services as well for advice um, in, in uh, trying to see where to go and what to do. In your previous lectures, you mentioned about the uh, uh, Ernst Heinkel and RJM comparing one another's work. If you remember, it's in your own yes, I've done a couple of them. You mentioned that, you mentioned that Heinkel Mitchell admired Heinkel's elliptical wing, and you mentioned um, Mitchell admired uh, Heinkel's elliptical wing, that's right, and yeah. Heinkel in turn took a made very great study of the Schneider trophy races, uh, streamlining. And also, how much do you think that designers copy one another, such as the Castoldi of Mackey, how far did he copy Mitchell in the S4, S5 of the uh, Mackey thing which flew won the Baltimore race? When you put racing wires on it. Well, I uh, did try to make the point that R.J. Mitchell was a man with a very open mind who was prepared to listen to what other people said and, and of course, to take notice of what they did. And there's no doubt he was, he was watching closely what was going on all around the place. And I haven't slightest doubt he was influenced by everything that seemed to him to make sense. And he thought that uh, he was influenced by the Heinkel. And I did mention that uh, he put the bracing wires back uh, because he thought they were a good idea having had trouble when he left them off. Actually, Mitchell's plans, RJ's plans for the S5 with bracing were drawn before Mackey was, was uh, came into view. 
In fact, there was Mitchell uh, took the uh, drawings up to the air ministry while he was in Hartford. His briefcase was pinched. Of course, when the uh, Italian thing came out, everybody said, "Ah, oh, they were the ones who pinched the drawings." <laughs> it was agreed that they hadn't had time to design them and produce it. I think I'm right in saying, surely, that the Mackie aeroplane, which won the 1926 race in America, had a braced wing. It had, in other words, the form which Mitchell incorporated in the S5 of 1927. So, in fact, the idea was there before the S5 was designed, irrespective of anything about pinching drawings or anything else. Isn't that correct? Yes, I thank you for reminding me about the seat. That was an, an epic business, without a doubt, whatever. We, uh, Mr. Sommer had the job of testing the seat, and it had to be organised with rockets, which represented the air blast of the air over the fuselage when you fired the seat and these rockets threw out a lot of inflammable stuff and the seat was being thrown in order to prevent it being damaged onto a, a large straw stack which was built for the purpose and in order to make quite sure that we didn't have a fire we had a hose running all the way down from Hursley house about a hundred yards to the straw stack and a fireman standing by well they fired the seat and they fired the rockets and after a few goes the inevitable happened, the straw took fire. Whereupon the fireman sprang into action and turned on the hose. Unfortunately the other end of the hose at Hursley House, hundred yards away, hadn't been turned on. <laughs> and we had a marvellous fire, we had about two or three fire engines and they found that the fire engines from different districts had different ends on their hoses and they couldn't connect the ends of the hoses together to carry the water and one thing and another. An awful lot was learnt by everybody. <laughs> it was responsible for the arrangements of it. It had a dummy man in it, I think. I did have a dummy man, I think. Um, and I think actually, if I may say so for the record, whilst I very much admire your lecture, I think it was more than ten at the time R.J. died. In fact, I could tell you 15 people from memory in the effect process there. I think I'm right that there was yourself, sir. Mr. Mansbridge, Mr. Shenston, Sherville, Sommer, Kimber, Hennessy, Holmes, Smith, Howitt, Bibir, Arnold, Kennedy, Murray White, and myself in more humble positions. And that makes 15. Well, I'm sorry. Thank you for add adding up. I, I hadn't got an exact record, and I said about 10, but... Uh, Does anyone else like to ask a question? Um, how much influence does servicing have on the design of an aircraft? The reason I ask is, um, I had the Swift squadrons in Germany, and whilst the pilots thought that they were the most wonderful aeroplanes I'd ever had, in the servicing aspect, they really were shockers. <laughs> The answer would appear to have been, not enough. <laughs> I think it's quite true that we, we you know, in, in developing the aeroplane to make it work, we didn't give enough attention to the servicing side. This is some lesson perhaps that we, we had to learn. We were, I don't know in what respects, of course, you're thinking of particularly, but we were 
introducing power controls, which were a new thing, which we had to make work. But uh, I didn't claim that the Swift was perfect, only that it met its specification. <laughs> well, I think we've kept Mr. Clifton going for a rather long time, and I'm hoping that uh, he will agree and, and that the editor will agree and have most of his lecture published so that there's details which he's given us tonight, which have been really amazing quantity and accuracy. Very few questions have been uh, raised as to their accuracy. One only, I think, is the number of people by Mr. Pardo, but uh, I no doubt Mr. Clifton will put that right. But uh, I think you would all agree you would like to see most of this published, wouldn't you? So that we got it on record. And I thank you all very much for attending tonight to hear Mr. Clifton. It certainly encourages the lecturer that we get a good attendance. Now may we thank Mr. Clifton in the usual manner.